Hello, I'm Matt Purvis. And I'm Amy Green. Welcome to the House of Lords podcast. In this episode, we're talking about what's been happening recently, the science of healthy ageing, and we hear from Lord Cashman about his life and campaigning for LGBT plus equality. Welcome back. Uh, it's been a while actually since since our last episode. I think it was about a week or so before Christmas, which just seems such a long time ago. So should we kick off by talking about what's what's been happening since we last spoke? Yeah, sure. Well, the big thing, I guess, was that there was a trade deal announced on the 24th of December, and then we had a recall of the House of Lords on the 30th of December. That saw the House return to pass a bill in a day. Since then, on the 5th of January, the House has returned and has been sitting regularly since then. So what exactly is a recall? Okay, well, I mean, essentially, a recall is uh, when the House returns from a pre-planned break in proceedings. Um, So before Christmas, what happened was that the House uh, adjourned on the 17th of December with a planned return of the 5th of January. So that would be a normal Christmas recess. But of course, in the meantime, the government was negotiating with the EU to try and strike a trade deal. The House was told that the House may return if a deal was struck. And that's what exactly was announced on the 24th of December. Obviously, it wouldn't have been very popular to call the House back on Christmas Day. So the 30th of December was earmarked and both houses returned that day to sit to pass the European Union Future Relationships Bill. And how common is that? How common are our recalls? Well, I've been looking at the uh, figures and in the last decade, we've had six. So that's since 2011. I mean, recalls typically happen in response to international situations uh, or, uh, or notable deaths. So in the last 10 years, the House was recalled following the murder of Joe Cox MP. Um, When Baroness Thatcher died as well, the House was recalled for tributes. Up until 2011, there were five as well, but they all clustered around sort of 2002 relating to 9-11 and the Iraq war. We then had none between 2002 and 2011. It was probably a little bit more unusual that the House came back to pass a bill in such a rush. That is probably fairly unusual. That was only the third time since the war that that had happened. And as you said, they met to pass the European Union Future Relationship Bill, uh, which is obviously now an act. And they did that in a day. So doing all the stages and you know, giving it royal assent in a day. How often does that, does that happen? It's not uncommon, but it requires the House to agree to basically uh, suspend its own standing orders or dispense with its own standing orders related to minimum intervals between the stages of bills. So, for instance, between a bill arriving in the Lords and it having its first substantive debate, the companion to the standing orders, the sort of rule book as to um, how the House operates, says it's two weekends between the two. So obviously the House has to dispense with that in order to do it in a day. So that was December. So what's been happening since the Lords returned in January? Well, as I say, uh, I mean, the House has been meeting as normal. So we have questions every day. There's private notice questions when the Lord Speaker approves them. Scrutinising legislation, debating committee reports. Committees have also been releasing reports. Probably worth noting here the International Relations and Defence Committee's report on Afghanistan. We also have seen the Science and Technology report on the science of ageing. We spoke to Lord Patel, who chairs the Lord's Science and Technology Committee. He shared with us some of the recent work of the committee on the science of ageing and their recommendations to the government on how to improve health in older age. (laughs) 
My name is Narin Patel. I'm a member of House of Lords, but I chaired the Science and Technology Committee Inquiry on Healthy Aging, Science and Technology for Healthy Living. So, Lord Patel, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Is it right that the Science and Technology Committee found that the government would miss its target to extend healthy ageing by five years, by 2035? Well, I need to put that question in the context, and the context is this, that the government in 2017 announced as part of their Ageing Society Grand Challenge, which was one of the industrial strategies, was to extend healthy aging by five years beyond the current minimum now, and to do that by 2035. And our inquiry exploring science and technology that could help deliver on that found that in fact they will not meet that target for a variety of reasons. And therefore we recommended that they should revisit that strategy and come out with a clear roadmap and have a person in charge to deliver on it with the regular reports to the parliament as to how that strategy is progressing. I think the ambition is good to extend healthy aging by five years, by 2035, or even if it takes slightly longer. What role does inequality play in all of this? Ah, that's a good question. Because the first thing we found that unless we deal with inequality, and what do we mean by inequality? People who are less deprived, and I use it deliberately, less deprived, live a healthier life by as much as 16 to 18 years longer than those of the deprived community. And that's the key issue about inequality. Inequality deprivation leads to ill health and early death. So the first thing we need to tackle, if you want people to stay healthier longer, is to tackle inequality in our society that produces ill health and early death by as much as 20%. So that's what we mean meant by inequality. And in fact, if I put it in the context of COVID, which is a question you might ask me, um, is, is the COVID has starkly demonstrated that. That is the old and the deprived population, and of course, ethnic minorities too. But the aged and the deprived population suffered most, particularly if you remember the data we used to see in the first wave of COVID starting in March, April. So COVID has put that into clear context. Not only that, but people who suffer ill health because of deprivation have what we call multimorbidity. They suffer from multiple disorders and diseases. So again, COVID had starkly demonstrated that. The aged, the multimorbidity, the ethnic groups and the old. So what do you think the government could do to resolve these issues? First and foremost, deal with inequality. We need to tackle inequality and deprivation to keep people healthier, to people have a healthier life and also have a healthier, longer life when they get older. There's also an issue about People who are unhealthy and younger also become less productive. So it's an economic side to it too, right? So there's plus, plus, plus to deal with inequality first, right? And deprivation. The second is about, there is no doubt that healthy living, which is a message that we are given all the time, not 
smoking, not taking too much alcohol, taking exercise, keeping your weight reasonable, etc. And you young guys seem to be doing better than us oldies. But uh, that healthy message doesn't seem to get across very clearly. And the government needs to they do say in our report, the government needs to find out why that message isn't getting through. Is it the way it is delivered, the way people are helped to live healthier life? But the important message as it pertains to our report is that people to be told, to be, need to be told, if you live healthier lives starting at a younger age, you will have a healthier old age. And that's the important thing. But another important thing is about healthier lifestyle and old age is that actually it is demonstrated through cohort studies that it improves cognitive performance. And older people value cognitive performance because if your mind doesn't function and you can't communicate, et cetera, then it makes you even more less of a social being. So that message also needs to be reinforced. We now know a lot about the science and the biology of aging, which we didn't know before. So as we age, our cells, for instance, don't die, they survive, and they become what is known as senescent. When the body cells become senescent and they accumulate, they set up an inflammatory process. That inflammatory process results in diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, blood pressure, cardiac disease, diabetes, even possibly Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So what we need now is a developed diagnostic that will show earlier on that you're getting accumulation of senescent cells and then find treatments, drugs, to mitigate against it. That is already happening, that we're beginning to use, identify some new drugs and some drugs that already exist that may help mitigate against this process. So people don't develop these diseases. So science now, of aging and the biology has a great promise to keep people healthier longer and find diagnostics and medications that would help. What we need is a greater resources towards research in this area. And that too will help significantly about avoiding people developing multiple morbidity, multiple difficult conditions and live healthier life. So that's extremely important. After all, we are science and technology committee, and science and study of it is important to us. So that is a key area. Oh, that's really interesting. So it's, I guess, sort of fundamental to aging then. Yeah. So what we now know is in a cell cycle, like while you're talking to me, millions of cells in your body and mine are dying off. In your case, the cells are dying off and they're gone. In my case, some of they don't die off, so they accumulate. When you accumulate, and the key bio that I was taught at medical school of any disease is an inflammatory reaction. Now, you're more familiar with acute inflammatory reaction when you cut yourself or you get hurt or you break a bone or whatever. It hurts and it gets inflamed. But what I'm talking about is chronic inflammatory condition. You don't see that redness. But these cells set up an inflammatory reaction. There's fundamental basis, pathological basis of any disease is an inflammatory process that then results depending upon where it is. If it's in your joint, you get arthritis. If it's in your blood vessels, you get blood pressure. If it's cardiac, then damages the cardiac cells, damages your kidneys. 
If it's in your brain, you might get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease. So these senescent cells that accumulate, we need to either find a way of identifying early accumulation, kill them off, which will be ideal, or reduce the numbers, or manage them to become less inflammatory. And that's where the drugs will come in. Already there are a couple of drugs on trial. And that's an important issue. Most trials of drugs are done in a pure situation. They're not done in people who have multimorbidity to treat multimorbidity. There are other issues about how we look after people with multimorbidity. But that science is quite fascinating, which we didn't know 10 years ago. So now I think we really, it is up, and we haven't talked about technologies that will be needed to help people live independently, more independently in older age, such as AI and robotics, et cetera. So it's possible to monitor me if I was living alone from remotely uh, with AI so that you, somebody doesn't have to sit watching me all the time to live more independently. You, you, you might not know yet, but I do, but because even a simple gadget, like a bit of a gripping rubber that makes easier to open cans. Now, all people find that, now that's simple, but there are technologies that are much better, but you'll also get embedded diagnostics so you can monitor people's diseases and trigger them. We use it in my hospital here, actually, no, they're not embedded, but they are through, through your phone or whatever. Lord Patel, you mentioned earlier about sort of healthy lifestyles. I just wanted to ask your sort of view on, I guess, habit-forming behaviours right now during lockdown. So any day of a week open the newspaper, there's something about increasing alcohol or people not exercising as much. Do you have any concerns about the longer-term Sort of implications of that for healthy aging? Well, uh, the concern I have is not the, about the lockdown. It's not just about the older people. It's about the virtually children to older people. That concern to me anyway is not so much about the amount of alcohol they might be drinking, which I probably start drinking more. I think people are taking a bit more exercise than they normally used to because it's, that's the only way to get out. But more concern I have for all age groups is the mental health. And what's next for the committee? So apart from health and COVID, which is our current problem, some people will say that the bigger problem is climate and environment. So we're going to look at the science and technology of decarbonization. Going to look at the major areas which we can decarbonize, like if it's transport or if it's home heating or whatever, can we deliver it using technology at scale, just like a, can you deliver good health at scale? And what might be the cost? So we're going to look at some aspects because we can't do it all, some areas of science and technology of decarbonization and can it be delivered at scale, whether it's hydrogen or batteries or carbon capture or carbon air capture or home heating or, um, you know, air or ground heating or whatever. So that's next. Lord Patel, thank you for joining us. It's been really nice chatting to you today.
Next up, it's LGBT plus history month at the moment and the House of Lords is celebrating our LGBT plus members and their contribution. So Lord Cashman is known to many people as an actor famous for a number of roles, including Colin Russell in EastEnders. He also co-founded Stonewall and sat as an MEP for 15 years. We spoke to Lord Cashman about his different careers, what brought him to the House of Lords and where we are now with LGBT plus equality in the UK. Uh, Here's what he had to say. Hello, my name is Michael Cashman, Lord Cashman of Limehouse, but I prefer to be called Michael. Michael Cashman, thank you for joining us on the podcast. So it's currently LGBT plus history month at the moment throughout February and your book, uh, one of them, tells your incredible story from growing up in the East End to, to joining the House of Lords through some of the most pivotal moments in contemporary gay history. Growing up, did you ever even imagine that you'd find yourself where you are today? No, I, I live very close to uh, the big, huge council estate where I grew up in the East End of London, the thriving docks that were just alive with energy and goods coming from all parts of the world and being shipped around up river, down river, uh, disappearing into men's pockets and trousers. Um, and often, and I used to play with my brothers uh, on the river, doing things that if we did it today, our parents would get locked up, jumping <laughs> at high tide from barge to barge, uh, going into warehouses and out onto the, the, the Thames as the tide was coming in and going out. And often, uh, this is absolutely true, I walk uh, on my way to, to work and I sometimes visualise that five-year-old me down on the beach or jumping from barge to barge and you know the, the, the holes hanging out of his trousers, holes in his shoes, socks that would never stay up. And I look at him and I think, what an amazing journey. And I could never have imagined it. Unimaginable. And interestingly, you, you mentioned the book. When I physically collected the book uh, just before it went on, uh, sale. I got it and came home, walked along Narrow Street, and there, down this little side street where I used to run and play, I saw the young me running along that street. And, um, and I began to cry because I thought of the amazing journey that I'd been on and that I'm still on. And it was all there in this book under my arm. The, the, the dark bits, the brilliantly light and funny bits, but it was all there. And so, um, so it, yeah, I don't take it for granted because it's still forever around me. And also what I do know is that whatever you have, you can always lose. Absolutely. God, I think that is the most beautiful answer we've ever, ever had to a question on the podcast. <laughs> well, it's before. downhill from here. <laughs> um, and many people, of course, will know you from your career as an actor, um, but also as the co-founder of Stonewall, the, the uh, campaigning organisation that you set up with um, Serena McKellen. What led, you, what led you to that? The really interesting thing is going back to the origins that we talked about that really all of the chances have happened by a series of accidents uh, or things that I shouldn't have dared to do. The fact that I failed my 11 11 plus and ended up, uh, failed something I didn't even know I was taking, 
uh, ended up at a secondary modern school where, because I knew at the earliest age I was attracted to, to boys sexually, and I, we used to call it queer. Um, but the, the fact that I knew I was gay and I didn't belong. Um, and, and so I found an outlet and that outlet um, was, um, was singing, dancing and impersonating. And because I impersonated Eartha Kitt and found this amazing world at school behind that faded red curtain where I could be different and I could belong. Um, and I could have all of my different characters and enter my pretend world. And, and it was through impersonating Eartha Kitt, singing in the end of term school show, that at the age of 11, I was invited uh, to go and audition for Oliver in the West End. And my life changed. And that took me on this arc all the way to where I am now with various diversions. And the straightforward answer to uh, setting up Stonewall, my career, I had very different, some amazing changes at the height of success. But there I was starring in uh, the most popular show on BBC television at the time, EastEnders. We used to get between 11 and 17 million viewers every episode. And um, when I was playing Colin, uh, the, the first time a, a gay character had been portrayed in a very ordinary, non-stereotypical way. It was greeted when I went on uh, with huge controversy, media outrage, outrage in Parliament, because the AIDS pandemic uh, was, was something that we were living with. And then during my time on the show, the government then introduced, the Conservative government led by Margaret Thatcher introduced the first anti-lesbian and gay and bisexual law in 100 years. And I knew I had to be a part of that group of people campaigning against this law. It was an amazing campaign. It became law. We lost the battle. And having lost the battle, I said to Ian that we should, Ian McKellen, that we should set up an organization. So another Section 28 never happened again. We had, we'd won the arguments for equality and we should continue to win them, to place them and make them non-party political. And that was 1988. And a year later, we publicly launched Stonewall. And, um, and our remit was equality and social justice for lesbians, gay men, and bisexuals. And it was only much later that we took on the very important issue, and I'm proud we have, of the rights of trans people. Uh, but the very beginning, 1989, and the quest, the simple quest, equality before the law and the equal protection of the law. And I suppose that sort of sparked your involvement in sort of the political world. You later became uh, an MEP and you've you've played sort of key roles in the Labour Party. In fact, I know your civil partnership was attended by about half the cabinet at the time and, <laughs> and your friends from TV and theatre. So you've held, I mean, you've held a lot, a lot of different jobs in different industries in very different worlds. What has it been like sort of straddling between, you know, the arts and, and the political circles? Well, it, it, what is interesting is I, I joined the Labour Party. My dad was a docker. My mum was a, a proud, proud office cleaner. I used to go office cleaning with her as a kid. Uh, and so my roots were rather like my father's. Uh, he was a, a trade unionist. and. Um, and so I joined the Labour Party 
when I was 25. Uh, but uh, but I, I never thought that I could go into politics. I, didn't, I hadn't finished my education. I left school really at the age of 12. Yes, I did sciences a bit later in my life because I wanted an amazing career change, which uh, people will have to read about. But when I made that decision, in, encouraged by the first woman general secretary of the Labour Party, uh, Bar Baroness uh, Margaret McDonough, as she now is, and with the love of, and support of my late husband, Paul, they convinced me I could do it. I stood for the national executive of the party, and then, as you say, became a, a member of the European Parliament in 1999, the first time uh, someone had been elected who was openly gay from the United Kingdom to the European Parliament. Straddling those different worlds, they're quite complementary because, first of all, you have to mean what you say. And if you mean what you say, you can communicate it. If you don't mean what you say, the public hear it immediately. They, they hear it in your tone. They, they, people, people recognize nonsense quicker than they do sense. And so being aware of communicating your message, learning your brief, knowing your brief, and also having the courage uh, to say when you don't know the answer, when you're in territory that you're not sure of. And, and, and as an actor, you're always taught to experiment, to imagine, to look at it differently. And I think in politics and to, and to work with people, and this is crucial. I think in politics, politicians far too often own the success. And I believe uh, as politicians, we should say the success is brilliant and we all own it. The constituency, the, the constituent that brought it to me, the company, the person, whatever, my staff, the people who work with me. Another mantra of mine is uh, I don't work for anyone. Nobody works for me. I work with, they work with. We are on the same level, the same landscape. And so the European Parliament helped me uh, as a kind of tra training ground uh, for what it's like in the House of Lords. In the European Parliament, no one party has a majority. You have to work cross-party to get that majority. You have to compromise, compromise being a positive notion, not a negative notion. And that's very much the way the House of Lords works. You can win the arguments in, in, in a debate on an amendment. You build up relationships, personal relationships, political relationships across the different parties. And, and I love that way of working. And I think the fact that I'm free in that comes from a, an artistic background where you've got to work with others, sometimes even if they don't like you and you don't like them. It's the outcome, the outcome that matters. Michael, I mean, you've led a lifetime of firsts and you've mentioned some, the first uh, openly gay person to be elected a UK MEP. Um, famously shared the first gay kiss on a UK soap. Um, you also helped to drive forward an end to the ban on gay people serving in the armed forces and, and the creation of civil partnerships as well. So mm. where do you think we are right now in terms of LGBT plus rights and equality? Um, do you think that progress is under threat? Uh, we're in a worrying position. I see that with the, um, uh, the defamation, uh, the demonisation 
of trans people and trans women in particular. The fact that we still haven't had the promised uh, ban on conversion therapy, and there are talks that from within uh, number 10 Downing Street, there is a resistance on that, that the promised reforms on the Gender Recognition Act and, uh, and the, the defamation of, of trans people. That's also impacting on LGB plus people, non-binary, intersex. Uh, and, and why am I worried? That, that I am fearful that we have created scapegoating, the fear of the other, that somehow other people are to blame for problems that occur in this country or in our neighbourhood or in our uh, locale. Absolutely not. And, and that notion builds on taking away the rights of people, uh, whether they're, people have the right to seek asylum, I believe in refuge. You know, on, on Holocaust Day at night, I light a candle and I stand in the window as a sign that there is refuge here for those who need it. And how does intolerance and hatred begin? It begins when somebody decides to extinguish that candle and look away. Uh, I, so I am worried. And I've seen, sadly, in the, in the House of Lords, trans people and trans, trans teenagers and, and their families completely misrepresented. And now I see the attacks on lesbian, gay men and bisexuals. I see the attacks in our, in our schools where they're saying the DFE for three years worked on guidance for inclusive relationship and sex education, remembering that education empowers young people. Suddenly, without any reference uh, to the teachers and the experts that they've been dealing with, the guidance was changed and fudged, but only around LGBTI issues. A very dangerous signal and very worrying. We talked earlier about campaigning for equality, and you, you mentioned some issues there in terms of LGBT plus rights and equality. How do you think your sort of campaigning methods have changed since joining the Lords? You mentioned earlier about cross-party working. Has it changed at all? Is it the same techniques? It hasn't changed. Uh, if I'm honest, uh, I've just um, elided from my 69th year into my 70th. And sometimes you get a bit tired at having to fight the same battles 30 years later. We're, we're literally fighting the same battle against Section 28. They don't want to talk about these things in schools. I've already talked about that a little. But, but my campaigning techniques haven't changed. You have to put the, the reasoned and reasonable arguments for doing the right thing. You have to work cross-party. For instance, I, I do a lot of work with Baroness Williams, the Home Office Minister, Lord Lexton, uh, and I've just worked with uh, Baroness Goldie on the Armed Forces Bill, which was introduced in, into the other place, the House of Commons, uh, this week. And, uh, and within that bill, there, there are changes that I've been arguing for and that are currently in my private member's bill, uh, extending posthumous uh, pardons. So, so that's the same way we started with Stonewall, which is to say campaigners and campaigning organisations always have difficult lives because that's the nature of arguing for change that 
there is a great resistance to delivering. But it, but it goes on, uh, and I'm deeply, deeply empowered by the fact that there are young people behind me with energy. The young people are ahead of the game uh, on issues around uh, gender identity. And I've always said, you know, the, the, the most terrifying sound that, that a despot uh, or someone who's intolerant or resistant to change uh, can hear is the sound of a newborn baby because it signals another generation has come and another generation will come after that. In, in joining the Lords, and I'm, I'm thinking your answer might be no here because it's uh, ongoing goals, I guess. But did you did you join the Lords with a specific goal in mind? When I joined the Lords, of course, uh, the, len- the then leader of the Labour Party, Ed Miliband, had named me as the first ever global envoy for LGBT plus issues. And, you know, I, I often reflect that if Labour had won that election, uh, I, I would have been the global envoy without a credit card going around the world, making the case for change and apologising for the negative changes that we forced on countries during uh, our colonial years. But, but going into the Lords um, present, presents me with other opportunities. The great thing about the Lords is, regardless of whether I sit now, uh, as, as, as you know, as a, a, a non-affiliated peer, I resigned uh, from Labour over anti-Semitism and, uh, uh, and Europe. But even if you're sat as a, 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 a party member, you're still an individual voice. You bring your exper- experience, your expertise, your point of view, and, uh, and that's extremely important. So the, the Lords gives me uh, a lot of other uh, opportunities, not the least on um, issues around human rights, defending human rights, defending the Human Rights Act. Uh, issues on on Europe, the uh, and and particularly uh, around ensuring that we, in terms of the what we call the disregard of convictions for uh, for, for crimes that are no longer uh, homosexual crimes, that we widen that disregard so that the records that people have are wiped clean and they can get on with their lives and do the jobs that they really want to do. So uh, it's a long way round of saying I love being in the House of Lords. Which brings us on to uh, a uh, related question there. I, I get to ask it this podcast. We ask uh, every member this one. And do you have a favourite moment so far from being a member? I do. I do. I'd spent the morning. It was a, I think it was a, a Thursday afternoon, uh, early afternoon debate. And I'd spent the morning with my brother. When he was going through a three-hour disability reassessment, which was just uh, uh, for me uh, unbearable, where he was everything he said was punched into a computer, and the computer made the, the decision on his future. And I was taking part in a, a debate around human rights, and I I thought I haven't got time to get upstairs for my notes. Oh, what shall I do? I thought I know what I'll do. I'll do the old trick. I'll sit there. And then as soon as it comes to my turn, I'll stand up and I said, my lords, I, I have listened to the contributions of, of, of noble lords. And it's quite clear uh, that what I was going to bring to the debate has already been covered. So I will retake my seat, thereby ga- gaining a lot of brownie points from other people who want to speak. But as the debate went on, 
the strands of, of what I prepared were coming back into my mind and I was being agitated by certain things that the government minister was saying. And so I stood up and I did my 10 minutes and I did it without any notes. And, and I'm not boasting, but I, I was, I blushed with some, some of the lovely comments that were made about it should, and by people I really admire, that, that it should be read as a standalone piece, blah, 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 blah. And then as I, when the debate finished, I was walking along one of the corridors at the side of the chamber and a law lord who took part in the debate came towards me, really uh, um, a wonderful man. And he looked at me and he went, stole the show, dear boy, stole the show. And I said, I said, it's not a show. He went, sometimes it is, you know, but you stole the show. And it was just lovely and warm. And actually, you know, the day I went in, I was introduced. It was four days after Paul had died. And, and the kindness and the empathy that I was shown was nobility itself. And, and, the, that, and that's what I like about the place. It works uh, out of mutual respect and respecting difference as well as respecting agreement. Yes, there, there need to be reforms. Of course, uh, every great institution must always embrace change and reform. But would I reform it with a directly elected house? Absolutely not. It doesn't need to look over its shoulder at fear of revising something that might make it unpopular. For me, uh, becoming a politician at the top of the job description should be the courage to be unpopular because it means you will have the courage to serve the long term and not the short term. Yeah, as Matthew said, we, we tend to ask all of our guests that question. And I just I love asking that one because you just get such um, great stories and insights. And it's actually interesting that a lot of you talk about, you know, each other and that and that working together and, you know, sort of working with people that you never expect uh, that you would work with. It works because I think the difference between our place and uh, the other place, as we call the commons, yeah, is that we start off by trying to seek agreement. And it's a, it's a completely different mindset. Uh, and also recognizing that where there is disagreement, actually, as I mentioned earlier, you can overcome it, Amy. You can reach and say, okay, how can you and I, or us, how can we do this? You know, one of the sort of shining, shining lights really is that that healthy debate that is really allowed in the House of Lords. And Amy, also making party political points in the House of Lords is, it, it doesn't go down well. And, and you know, I said earlier, I, I, I don't believe in having a directly elected, uh, an indirectly elected as part of the makeup of the House would be a very, uh, a very good idea. So if, as an example, you're the leader of Leeds City Council, that gives you a right for you during your tenure and a year after to sit there in the Lords to bring in that 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 huge experience of Leeds and, and that part of uh, West Yorkshire and equally uh, uh, around the rest of the United Kingdom. But then you would have people who were appointed because I sit there in some debates that I'm not taking part in and I'm in awe of the expertise that is being used to shape 
and refine and better legislation. And actually, it's expertise that the government could not buy. When I listen to some of those lawyers, those academics, people who come with the experience of, of, the, of their field, it's, um, it's, it's a huge, huge asset for the country. I was interested about your moment of, of, of speaking without notes. And obviously, as a very talented and experienced actor, I would have thought that would sort of almost be second nature to you. You'd learn the speeches and perhaps go noteless. But I suppose my question is around what advice you were given when you first joined the Lords about how to, how to make an effective contribution to the House. What, and also, what, what have you observed that works and what doesn't, perhaps? The, the, the argument about do you stand up and, uh, and speak without notes uh, or not? Notes are, are powerful to remind you that you, there are certain things that you need to say, certain points that you need to make. Uh, and also, Matt, to be honest, uh, as an actor, when you get it wrong, it's you and maybe the production that suffers. In politics, if you get it wrong, it's the issue you're representing, the people who work with you. And, um, uh, and if you're in a party, uh, it's the party. Uh, that gets the uh, the blame as well. Interestingly, interestingly, I don't believe in the concept of failure. I think it's it's something that's used to prevent people from from taking chances. Failure, what other people call failure, is for me evidence that someone has tried to change something and presumably change it for the better. So, um, but when you do get those moments, those flights of imagination, where you pick up a theme and you run with it. Uh, it can be wonderful, but sometimes you run with it and then you don't know where to end with it. And you see people turning off. Give I up while you're a, ahead. Oh, yeah. sorry. Exactly. Yeah, I, was, I was about to say exactly the same thing, Matt. <laughs> In a slight gear shift, I suppose, I'd like to ask you, if I may, about It's a Sin. For anyone that hasn't heard about it, firstly, where have you been? Uh, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a series on Channel 4 at the moment by, uh, by Russell T. Davis, following you know the lives of group of gay gay men gay friends during during the AIDS uh, crisis uh, Amy I sat down on Saturday after the Friday first episode went out and um and I thought right I'll watch it uh, and I'd had messages from friends saying oh I, I, I watched the whole thing on uh, all four and I thought ah, people got no taste why gorge on something <laughs> that's um, what I did sorry <laughs> And I sat there and went through them all. I, it is an amazing piece of storytelling. Russell T. Davis's writing is brilliant because so quickly you get to like his main characters and therefore you want to go on their journey. You hope for them. You empathize. You ache for them. And you hope it doesn't go where you think it might. So I, I, I'm just about to pen a piece for a, a daily newspaper, actually, in that at the end of it, I had these this clash of emotions. That the, I don't want to give anything away to those who haven't seen it all by the time we do our podcast, but I had that, that sense of loss at the end. But I also had this amazing anger because I realized that all of the stigma, the stigmatization, the, 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 the discrimination, 
the misinformation, the misrepresentation around LGB people, mainly gay and bisexual people, uh, and AIDS and HIV from people who knew better and the media who knew better was now being visited on trans women and trans men and trans teenagers. And the fact that it was being done by some people, some activists who'd survived that crisis made me so angry because I thought, have you learnt nothing? We don't, we don't go through battles and have our scars in order to make sure that other people battle and other people have to carry scars. We go through those, those events and those challenges so that other people don't have to. I spoke to a group of uh, head teachers uh, yesterday on a, uh, on a, a Zoom and, um, uh, and I said to them that it, this should be shown uh, every week in, in schools because it's also a reminder about evil that is done when good is not heard or spoken of. Shakespeare brilliantly said, and that anti-gay LGBT law from all those years ago, section 28, Shakespeare brilliantly said, the, the evil that men do lives on. The good is often interred with their bones. And, and I'm afraid that is true, that, that unless we challenge it and recognize that what is happening to another could happen to us, then evil will repeat itself. And it's, the show is a powerful reminder that you cannot remain silent in, in an issue. I, I deal with this in my book. And I say about when Paul and I went back to New York and the places where we sought fun and refuge, you could no longer seek refuge because there was death in the corner. There was death in the face of somebody sat the other side of the bar. And the American act up, the American activists had a brilliant phrase and it said silence equals death. An important, important reminder. You cannot remain silent. I won't say any more because I can't put it any better than that. So I think we'll leave that one there. That was, yeah, that was absolutely brilliant to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of the House of Lords podcast. Uh, thank you to Lord Patel and Lord Cashman for joining us. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if there's something you'd love us to feature in a future episode, you can tell us by tweeting at UK House of Lords using the hashtag HLCast. Thank you.